Will you please stand with me and turn to the letter of Jude, second to last book in the Bible. A sort of moral chaos that we're going to see unfolding in Judges 19 is not limited just to the period of the Judges. We're going to be seeing here in Jude that it was there was a similar kind of moral chaos making inroads into the church in the New Testament period. And so let's read this just for some um, background, or I guess foreground, <laughs> uh, before we go back into the more ancient history of the people of God in Judges 19. Okay, Jude, verses 1 through 7. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We'll stop there. We could go on. We'll stop there with that reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a fitting place to end as we turn to Judges 19. Judges 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was journeying in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her, And bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father in law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. 
And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. And they were making their hearts merry. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, 
A woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Amen. You may be seated. Early in this sermon series, I introduced you to a term used by the Old Testament scholar Daniel Block. For him, it's really a key, if not the key, to understanding the whole book of Judges, and it's the term Canaanization. Canaanization. The Canaanization of Israel. And I think he's on to something important there. Because after entering the land of Canaan, Under Joshua, Israel was supposed to do what? They were supposed to conquer Canaan. They were supposed to rid it, cleanse it of idolatry. They were supposed to establish the worship of the one true God, a holy way of living as the people of God in God's land under God's kingship. That was Israel's calling. But of course, instead, what the book of Judges has been about is God's people failing spectacularly to carry out that conquest, according to God's instructions. And then partly as the result of that failure, we have seen them actually becoming more and more like Canaanites. The more they live among them, beside them, as they were never supposed to do in the first place, adopting Canaanite ways of life, Canaanite ways of worship. And nowhere is that more blatantly portrayed than here in chapter 19, which is arguably, in terms of the flow of the book, the the culmination of that theme of the canonization of Israel. As As the Benjaminites of Gibeah, at least, show their true colors in this chapter, that, that at least in this corner of Israel... The people have become so corrupt, so corrupt, as to be indistinguishable from two of the most notorious cities of all time, Sodom and Gomorrah. With very direct comparison being made between this chapter and the events in Gibeah and what happens at Sodom in the book of Genesis. I'll explain that more as we go. That's the title of tonight's sermon. In fact, it is Sodom and Gomorrah Reprise. 
And we're going to look at this chapter in three parts. The first one we're going to call an ultra-hospitality, verses 1 through 9. Second will be an unwelcoming city, verses 10 to 21. And then third, an ultimate atrocity, verses 22 to to, uh, 30, to the end of the chapter. Okay, so once again, uh, we're confronted at the very beginning of this chapter with um, that repeated refrain, that kind of bell toll that we've heard twice already. Uh, There was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. And once again, that uh, absence of godly leadership, leadership vacuum, that absence of, of someone to maintain and uphold the law of God among the people of God in God's land, that leadership vacuum is going to be felt very keenly, even from the very beginning of the story. Um, this story that ends in tragedy uh, does not begin uh, all just perfect and wonderful. There's um, disorder uh, baked into it from the very beginning. There, there's uh, this unsettling, there are these unsettling kind of question marks all over this troubled family's story, um, even from the beginning of the chapter. First of all, we could ask, well, why is this Levite sojourning in Ephraim? Um, This is not the first wandering Levite that we've seen in Judges. There was the wandering Levite of chapters 17 and 18. And if this Levite is is anything like that Levite's position, then that's not a good sign for this man. Um, Although we don't get a lot more detail um, along those lines. We could also ask, why does he take a concubine from Bethlehem instead of just a regular wife? Um, A concubine being kind of a a second-class level of wife in this ancient Near Eastern culture. These things uh, kind of worked a little bit differently, but they ought not to have worked differently in Israel among the people of God. We're supposed to approach uh, marriage according to the word of God. You could ask, what is a Levite doing having a concubine at all? There's a lot of debate over the exact meaning of that term in this historical moment, and I think there's some ambiguity about exactly how this kind of marriage-like relationship um, was like and unlike an actual full marriage. But what is abundantly clear, I think, is that this was a culturally conditioned marriage. It was a marriage not according to God's design for the union of a man and woman, but it was a marriage, quote-unquote, along the lines of what these people saw going going on around them in the land of Canaan. And this is really important for us to think about as the people of God living today because it's often been observed that for all of the church's very legitimate and important and justified outrage at the many ways that our culture has perverted and distorted the marriage relationship sort of out there, in many ways the church has compromised our own sort of moral credibility to speak to those kinds of issues in the culture around us by the disarray of our own households, the disarray of our own marriages, of our own sexual ethics, of our own uh, approach to relationships between men and women within the church. Judgment uh, begins with the household of God. We've got to remember that 
We've got to remember that what our culture needs is not just to hear our prophetic voice, not just for us to speak the truth about the Bible's teaching on marriage. Culture does need that. We need to speak the truth, say what the Bible says to whoever will listen. But what our culture really needs, not to mention what the church needs and what our children need, is actual godly Christian marriages that are faithful and that operate according to the Word of God and not according to the conventions and the terrible distortions that we absorb like sponges from just the status quo of what's going on around us. Now, as we keep thinking about this man and his concubine slash wife, um, I want to mention a helpful theme that comes up in a lot of uh, the counseling material. Some of you have heard names like David Pallison, Ed Welch, some um, they're authors in the kind of biblical counseling genre. And something I've really appreciated from their writings is a theme they emphasize is that um, all people, as we go through life, are at the same time both sinners and sinned against, simultaneously. That is a very important kind of truism for interpreting this chapter. Let me explain why. Um, There are so many sinful choices and sinful patterns and and problems and brokenness going on in so many directions in this chapter. It's easy to get lost if we start to think in this way, okay, if someone has been sinned against, then that makes them the victim, and the victim can do no wrong. And then, on the other hand, you have this person who's clearly committed a great sin against another person, and that makes them the perpetrator, and so we can't ever have any sympathy with that person. So we have this kind of Um, division between the victims and the perpetrators, and the victims get all sympathy and the perpetrators get all condemnation. And um, it's just this binary that uh, hold in black and white. But the fact is, in this chapter, very much like in real life, um, there are layers upon layers upon layers of sin and suffering and victimhood, and offense all the way through the chapter, running in many different directions like a, a web. So, I mean, to begin with, you could say, well, the Levite has sinned against this woman by wanting to marry her, but only as this second-class kind of um, almost master-slave relationship rather than a true husband-wife partnership. So that's the first thing. But then on the other hand, that doesn't cancel out the fact that this woman very clearly and seriously sins against her husband by leaving him, abandoning him, verse 2. It's not clear. People disagree a little bit about exactly what she did here. The word used for being unfaithful there in verse 2 is the Hebrew word for prostitution, actually. Uh, although it's not completely clear, we don't get a lot of detail about exactly what she did, exactly how and to what degree she broke this marriage relationship. What is at least clear is that she abandoned her husband and she winds up back in her father's house. 
um, until at last her husband slash master comes uh, to that house seeking to bring her back to his home, seeking reconciliation. And uh, really, that's maybe the, the brightest spot in this dark chapter is that reunion that takes place. There seems to be a, a, a true reconciliation, a, a coming together again of this married couple. And um, it's, it's very good for us to see the, the, the joy, even kind of the exuberance of this woman's father as he welcomes the husband back into his home. And um, it seems like he is trying to do everything in his power to help this reconciliation take place. Um, some people might be inclined to see something kind of off in the way that he sort of drags out the visit and keeps getting them to try to stay another night, another day, another night, another day. Um, and it does maybe remind you a little bit of uh, Laban and Bethuel in Genesis 24 when they're kind of reluctant, reluctant to let uh, Rebecca go with uh, Abraham's servant back to marry Isaac. Um, but I'm not sure we're supposed to see this really in a negative light, this father's behavior here. Uh, there are other ways where this hospitality he offers uh, to the Levite um, resemble in some ways uh, what we see in Genesis 18 of the way Abraham showed hospitality to um, the angel of the Lord. Um, that would be a more positive association. Um, and who knows, there may be some kind of complexity to this man's motivations here, kind of wanting the husband and wife to be reconciled, but a little reluctant to let his daughter go back out of his home. There are a lot of things that we don't know and can't know about this family dynamic. But here's what I think is really supposed to stand out here in this sort of overflowing ultra-hospitality that he keeps dragging out and keeps extending more and more, wanting the Levite to stay longer and longer. Where that really pays off is when you contrast it with what comes next. When you contrast it with the lack of hospitality in the city of Gibeah. So you have this overflowing hospitality in Bethlehem, but then you go to Gibeah, and there's no hospitality extended um, to this couple. So as we move on into that... um, second section, we don't want to miss the importance of uh, what happens in verses 10 to 12. The Levite servant says, okay, well, let's uh, go and stop off here in uh, Jebus, uh, the the Jebusite city. Um, And the Levite says, well, no, we we don't want to stop in a Jebusite city. We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. And what's the big assumption here? The big assumption here is that there will be a difference. There will be a difference in how an Israelite city will treat them. And that that should be much better than what they can expect from a bunch of Canaanites if they stop and try to stay in a Canaanite city. And that stands to reason, right? I mean, that's what you would expect. That is absolutely the way that things ought to be. But tragically, it is not the way things actually are. They get to this Israelite-controlled city of Gibeah. And the first thing we find out about that place is that no one took them into his house to spend the night. So you see that contrast with what they experienced the last few days and then what they're going to experience from the old man from Ephraim. But the Benjaminites who make up most of this town uh, aren't going to lift a finger to help these travelers out. 
So the historian here is going out of his way to draw a distinction between these Benjaminites and Gibeah and um, other people in Israel, the man from Judah, the man from Levi, the man from Ephraim. These, these Benjaminites are being singled out as a particular problem, and you can just file that away as we'll get more to the particulars of their uh, Benjaminite identity in the next two chapters. But um, leaving that to one side, I just want to draw up one particular kind of practical lesson here I, I think we need to see about what ought to characterize um, the, the community of the people of God. And this isn't just about Old Testament Israel. This is about what does a covenant community look like? What ought to characterize God's people in our relationship to one another? Because before we get to the um, atrocity the people of, these, of, the, of this city actually commit later on, they are first characterized by something they do not commit, something they leave out, something that they have failed to do, and that is to extend hospitality to their fellow Israelites traveling through their town. Hospitality is a very important uh, marker of the covenant community of the people of God. There are many examples of this in Old Testament histories where taking in a traveler is a mark of a godly person. Um, in the New Testament, the instructions are quite explicit. They're repeated. I think of Romans 12, 13. Seek to show hospitality, it says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, Hebrews 13, 2. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter 4, 9. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, Romans 15, 7. When we, when we welcome one another into each other's homes, into each other's lives. And of course, there are many ways of showing hospitality. It doesn't just mean, oh, you have everybody over for this dinner party where you all sit around the table and you eat a meal. That is one pretty standard and, and great way to exercise hospitality, but it's not the only way. There are all kinds of ways of welcoming one another, of getting into one another's lives, helping one another, offering that uh, friendship and love and care in practical, tangible physical ways. That's what hospitality is all about. Showing, living out in in embodied, side-by-side kinds of ways in the body of Christ that we belong together, that we are part of one living organism, the body of Christ. Living out that we really believe that what happens to you impacts me and vice versa. That we are here for each other as the people of God and that none of us have to go through life alone. That is a responsibility for every Christian. It is basic to the life of the church. And it was supposed to be basic to the life of the Israelites. But here in Gibeah, you can see what happens when there's a complete breakdown of that basic covenant characteristic of hospitality. It's gone in Gibeah. And it's been replaced something horrible. Here in Gibeah, everyone's just doing what's right in his own eyes. They're not looking out for one another. They're not seeking to live as one covenant body, as the people of God. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. There's this radical independence 
radical independence that belies the radical interdependence that's supposed to characterize the people of God. We are made to be interdependent in relationship with one another. And I just encourage us to embrace that idea, to embrace that interdependence of belonging together, of being there for each other, and living that out in the practical choices we make, in the way we spend our time, the way we extend the love and care and welcome of Christ in ways that are appropriate and fitting to our station in life and our capacity um, to extend the hospitality in different kinds of circumstances. I want you to think about the reputation of this city exemplified in the experience of these travelers and think, what do I want to be the reputation of this congregation, Resurrection Orthodox Presbyterian Church, when it comes to hospitality? What do I want to be the reputation of my household as part of that congregation? How I extend the welcome of Christ to other people. Okay. Well, there is one person in Gibeah who has that sort of mindset uh, to some degree. Not perfectly, as we'll see. Um, and, but he's not actually a Gibeonite. He is a man from Ephraim. He's from a different part of Israel, and he's living there temporarily. So this man from Ephraim comes along. He sees the travelers camping out in the city square, and he thinks, that is not going to be good. That's not going to end well. I can't let them stay there because I know the people of this city too well. And this is the first place where we start to hear the echoes very explicitly of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, from Genesis 19. So in Genesis 19, the travelers are these two angels in human form uh, who have come to uh, visit Lot. And Lot finds those two angels camping out in the city square. And he says, no, 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 you can't stay there. You better come to my house. And so this whole uh, narrative setup is, is foreshadowing what's going to happen next. What happens next in Gibeah is the same thing that happens next that night in Sodom. Um, and as it turns out, this Ephraimite's idea of what hospitality looks like is going to be more like Lot's idea of hospitality than um, is good for anyone. So in verse 22, um, the house gets surrounded. This assault begins. Once again, it's, it's exactly like what happened at Lot's house in Genesis 19. The men of the city surround the house. They demand that the man be brought out so that they can assault him. Um, obviously, it would be an awful uh, travesty for the host, the man who's just taken the travelers in, just to, to turn this man over into the hands of the mob. Uh, but just like Lot, somehow, somehow... That would be a bad option, right? But somehow this man finds a way to come up with a solution that is even worse. He says, no, don't do that vile thing to this man. Instead, I have an idea. Here's this man's concubine and my own daughter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just the, the convoluted, bent, corrupted set of kind of assumptions and instincts that would make that make sense to a man living in Israel. How many things would have had to have gone wrong 
in this man's life and the way he had been taught, the way he had been trained up and the people he had lived among and just the cultural milieu around him, for him to even think that this could be an option that would come to his mind. We've talked quite a bit in Sunday school about, um, I've used the phrase plausibility structures. We've explained what that means. I, I can talk to you about that another time if that term's confusing. But it's the idea of um, what people in a certain cultural setting view as um, believable. Not just what do people believe, but what do people view as believable? What do people see as plausible? We want to ask, how has this suggestion become even plausible to this man? How could he even entertain the idea that turning over these women to the mob would somehow be better than turning over the man? But to him, apparently, it makes sense. Somehow. Yet another piece of evidence that things are terribly off in Israel. This Ephraimite, that at, at first, it looked like he was going to be the protector. He was going to be the solution to the problem of, of Gibeah's uh, sort of unwelcoming cold shoulder. But instead, we end up seeing him actually participating in the bigger picture of the overall degeneracy of this place. Acting as though violating these women is somehow more acceptable than violating the one man. Part of what it means to be a man is to be willing to lay down one's own life in the defense of the vulnerable and defenseless. And this man is suggesting the exact opposite of that idea of biblical masculinity. And then, we, just when we think it can't get any worse, we see the Levite himself, the husband of this concubine, actually carry out the suggestion as he very boldly sacrifices his concubine to save himself. At the beginning of the chapter, we maybe felt bad for this guy. After all, the woman had left him, the woman had cheated on him. Remember, you can be sinned against and a sinner at the same time. Just because you've been victimized doesn't mean you can't also be a victimizer and vice versa. So there's this grave reversal here where the person we thought of as the victim at the beginning of the chapter now has become an atrocious perpetrator. And the one we initially thought badly of as the source of all the trouble in this family Well, now our hearts break for her. I'm not going to put you through reiterating what we've already read of what happens next. But I will just say, this morning we were talking about anger Jonah's anger in particular, and that question, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And we talked about how anger is the emotion that God gave us to motivate us to prevent and correct evil. And we talked about all the ways that anger goes wrong, and when we get angry at the wrong time, at the wrong things, And to the wrong degree, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this is exactly the sort of thing that God made us to be angry about. Anger, horror, outrage, 
Those are the right kinds of emotional responses to evil like this. As you see this woman falling down at the door of the man's house here. And you notice how all of a sudden the man goes from being spoken of like a husband now to just being called her master. Much more impersonal kind of way of describing their relationship. And her master rose up in the morning. And you can see how heartless, how callous his reaction to her seems to be. The mob has just treated her as an object. And now he seems to treat her as an object too. Just in a different way. And he sends the pieces of her body out to the 12 tribes of Israel as if to say, look at this great evil that those bad people in Gibeah did. But we as the readers know what the Israelites receiving those awful messages do not know, that this man is in fact right in the thick of things as part of the problem. That he, like the men of Gibeah, has so devalued and exploited this woman for his own ends for his own protection. And so the outrage that he's seeking to provoke from Israel really, by rights, ought to be directed against him as well. I think the historian invites us to share that outrage outrage against the man as much as against Gibeah. And so kind of zooming out here, try to get our bearings um, in the big picture What we want to see here is that things in Israel are just upside down, inside out, from the way they're supposed to be. As we were talking about earlier, these people who were supposed to drive out the Canaanites from their land, in fact, have managed now to outdo the Canaanites in their wickedness. Those who are supposed to show hospitality instead have assaulted the people who have come to their city for rest. Those who are supposed to provide protection and strength for the vulnerable and defenseless have instead sacrificed those under their care to save their own skins. This is everything opposite the way that life for God's people is supposed to be. And this is just the beginning because the last three chapters of Judges really go together. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is is that the assault at Gibeah touches off an entire civil war and um, and yet it's a war where finding out really who is in the right is very difficult because it seems like everybody is in the wrong. Everybody is sinning. Everybody is being sinned against. And tragedy piles on top of tragedy. And sin compounds and multiplies sin. And what a description. What a description that is not just of life in ancient Israel in the time of the judges because that... Is exactly what you and I experience in this broken world today. What you have felt in many of your own life experiences and those of the people that you love. But you see, the people of God were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to live under the kingship of the Lord in unity with each other as a light to the nations showing the glory of God through living as his covenant people, protecting the weak, using their strength to make God known to one another and to the nations. And yet, instead, they end up acting just like the nations. It's Sodom and Gomorrah all over again, except that now the villains are part of the family of Abraham. As we think about the way this chapter began, 
One of the points that this whole narrative is driving home for us is that what God's people need is a leader unlike any of the characters in this story. What we need, what they needed and what we need, is a king who will not sacrifice his people to protect himself. But instead, he will do the opposite. He will sacrifice himself to protect his people. What God's people need is a husband, a heavenly husband who will not force his bride to lay down her life to keep himself safe, but who will lay down his own life for her. And brothers and sisters, that is who the Lord Jesus is. That is one of the very important ways this passage teaches us to long for his coming. That is what the Lord Jesus has done for us as his body and bride. There's just, there's no way around this chapter in the Bible, and there's uh, no ambiguity about the fact that it is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible to read and contemplate. But even as it shows us these, these great depths of the depravity of God's covenant people at this time in their history, it also invites us, I think, It invites us to look also to the heights beyond this valley. The heights of the love and the patience and the grace of God, who would continue working to keep his promises and to complete his saving plan through Israel, um, in spite of all this evil that they committed. Not to mention the, the power of God who would be able to to bring good to pass at the end of a history with so much deep darkness in the middle. These are the things that we are to see about the character of God. This chapter teaches us, I think, to long in the midst of the chaos and the heartache of this world that is full of depravity and oppression. Teaches us to long in the midst of those experiences for a truly compassionate and selfless, and strong and faithful Savior and King who would lay down his life for his bride and who would take it up again and who would subdue the evil in our hearts and deliver us from the evil in the hearts of the people around us and who would bring us home one day to the place where he will wipe away every tear, where he will heal every wound, because this is the point, that the goodness and the grace and the glory of Jesus outshine the worst darkness that our own hearts and the hearts of the people around us and the dark experiences and valleys that we have walked through can muster. Think of the wonderful hymn that ends. Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd, good 
and true is he who will at last his Israel free of all their sins and sorrows. That is the hope of the gospel, people of God. That through the Lord Jesus you are freed. You are freed not only from your sins, but also from your sorrows. You are freed from the evil within and from the evil without. From the evil that you have perpetrated and the evil that you have endured. The Lord Jesus is your king and your sacrifice, your savior. He frees you from all of these things by his almighty power and his surpassingly mighty goodness and grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how can we end this day in this consideration of this chapter but the way that we began with those words of the crowds who greeted Jesus saying, Hosanna, Lord, save. Save us from ourselves. Save us from the evil outside. Salvation belongs to you and we commit ourselves to you this night. Asking that you indeed as our shepherd, good and true, would your Israel free from all of our sins and sorrows. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.